On this episode of the Bet the Process podcast, we have Cade Massey, an NFL draft expert. We'll also be talking a little bit about the NBA. We finished with a pretty interesting segment on sort of like the market and inefficiencies in the market. And we talked a little bit about what we can all learn from Cade as a uh, better. Um, as always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app, which is available on the iTunes Store and Google Play. And it's the best way for you to track all your sports betting content tips, whatever it is, and it's free. So go download it. And with that, let's start the process. Welcome to the Bet the Process podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Cade Massey, who is a Wharton professor, but more importantly, is an NFL draft expert, has worked with a variety of different NFL teams, um, and is still consulting with teams, although he never wants to ever mention what teams they are. Uh, before that, Rufus and I are going to talk a little bit about, I'm going to talk a little bit about the NBA, just because it's it's there, and I'm going to ask him some questions on I know that Rufus doesn't really bet the NBA, but I'm going to get try to get his perspective on things from from uh, analytical mind. And then after Cade's interview, we'll finish off with some thoughts and reflections on on what we can all learn as gamblers from Cade. Um, in terms of the the NBA, we had Tom Haberstroh on um, before the first round. He gave value um, to, or he talked about how the Wizards were uh, a good first round upset pick. Um, they were five to one against Toronto. They ended up not winning. They did. They did put that series at two two. Um, some of the other interesting things were the Celtics um, were only opened as like a minus one forty favorite against Milwaukee when home um, court should indicate in a series that they should be I think minus one sixty or worse. So basically, what they were saying was that Milwaukee was a significantly better team or at least better team um, the market moved it eventually to sort of like minus 175 one of the things i think that's happening with the celtics they, they opened as uh, i think they're almost like a four to one underdog uh, against philly and they won the first game by 17 which may which may not mean anything obviously just one game um but when you think about the celtics rufus it seems like they've constantly been undervalued because their players simply are not as good as the other team's players, but somehow their coach seems to be much more valuable. Do you think that coaches can be valued or undervalued? Like, do you see more in your work and sort of other sports? Do you see that there are like bad valuations of coaches that cause inefficiencies? I mean, I think of course there's bad valuations of coaches, but I think in this case, a lot of it is, like the question is, does a coach matter more in the postseason or the regular season? And I think that uh, one of these, one of the sort of prevailing um, theories with the Celtics is that uh, that they've maximized their potential. Basically, like um, uh, Stevens is able to get the most out of his players during the regular season, and they don't have like a level to crank it up to. Whereas other teams, you know, may have superstar players who who are better, um, but they're not able to sort of maximize. Uh, their ability during the regular season as much, but they have that level they can step up to. Now, I, I can't speak to whether that's true or not, but I, I tend to think that the prevailing wisdom there is, I mean, I'm sure there's some truth to it, but I think in the the narrative behind it may be a little bit, like, overplayed. Which narrative? Think? The narrative of, like, the coaching not The narrative that a team, well, the narrative, like, like a team like the Cavs, well, no, the, that a team can step up with a lot of talent, can I'm saying talent in, in parentheses because I don't know how you even define that. But a team with that's perceived to have a lot of talent, like the Cavs, can can step up and play at a level above what they did during the regular season because maybe they just weren't trying as hard during the regular season because they know that the playoffs matter more. So that's, this this is the whereas, this is that yeah. this is that like five thirty eight ESPN anti LeBron uh, analytics yep. thing where. Uh, Every playoffs, they completely undervalue the Cavs, um, and it seems like the Cavs come in and overperform certainly the the regular season yep. expectations. So, yep, and I know that a lot of people on like on 
on uh, gambling Twitter give ESPN model and 538 model crap about that. They're like, you know, this is so far off the market, blah, blah, blah. But I think that it is a model and it, it, it's, it, it acknowledges what it does. You know, the model acknowledges what it's based on. And, and I don't think that, I don't think giving it crap because saying it's wrong because this is, is necessarily saying that there's limitations of the model. And if you acknowledge that, then you can say, okay, well, this model is based on the regular season, not based on individual players. And it says this. Now, how much do now I can use that and then try to figure out how much I can account for the fact that I think that LeBron is going to step it up or whatever else is going to happen um, that is not included in the model, uh, how much that might affect it. Well, I mean, I agree with you. Like, it's not fair to just attack the model because the model is what it is. And and just to kind of give a little bit more on this, Rufus and I have a lot of context on this because we've been talking about this for probably over a year after uh, Ben Alomar, who is the guy that runs sort of analytics for ESPN. And I got into it on Twitter because I basically was sort of attacking his model, which is not a bottoms up model, meaning it's not a player based model. It's a model that's tops down. It looks at the whole season statistics. And so it doesn't adjust and has no way to adjust for things like, Hey, LeBron might be playing 48 minutes or the rotations are going to be completely different um, than, than they were. And then if you add in the fact that like effort levels and might be different, um, you know, you have a situation that the model is not necessarily going to do well modeling um, in the postseason. The problem is that they do still show on ESPN and, and I haven't looked this year, but last year they still did show you know, their probability of winning the series based on this model. So while I agree with you that a model can have shortcomings and people know what they are, they are actually using that model and predicting something um, and presenting that information without a you know big caveat that says like, hey, guys, this may not be accurate because of X. They're still saying that we believe these are these are what our numbers believe are the odds of this team winning uh, this series. Um, I, I do think that's like irresponsible from an analytics standpoint. Yeah, I guess it depends on how it is being presented, right? If it's on if it's on Sports Center, they say, you know, the Cavs have a 27% chance of winning this series then and don't really add any caveats to that or anything like that, then yeah, I I can see where you where you're coming from. So here's here's my second question to you. Um assuming that I forced you to bet uh in the NBA playoffs and I gave you this model that I told you had, you know, let's say 3% edge or something, whatever, like good edge on the market um, during the regular season. And it was based, you know, on statistics and whatnot. And it, it works and it's back tested and whatnot. I gave you that model. During the regular season. Yes. Just during the regular season. Is it a and tops down or bottoms up model? It's a bottoms up model. So it can account for differences that happen in the playoffs from a player personnel standpoint. And it can adjust for that. So you're kind of, it can. Yeah, you have an ability okay. to adjust based on what you think uh, player rotations will be and whatnot. Okay, um, okay. You don't, you don't have an ability to adjust for what we'll call motivation. So I hand right. you this model, and it gives you, the, what the, you know, what the line, what the line should be for all these games. And as the series goes on, you see value uh, – based on, you know, sort of things like zigzag theory or motivational or motivation. Will you bet that model blindly or will you not bet that model blindly? I haven't actually analyzed the zigzag theory thing. Um, I know what you're talking about, but I would tend to think that I, I would tend to think that that's more narrative than reality, but I, I would. Do you understand I mean, the crux of my question? Yes, I do totally understand your question. And I would say that, yes, I would, I would bet it probably. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's kind of an interesting thing because the reason I'm asking this is you will see these tremendous fluctuations in lines um, in these games in the playoffs where really nothing changes in terms of player personnel. Like maybe there's thought that certain players will play more, or maybe there's thought, but but generally it's just this team is in a situation where they should respond, and there's a you know premium put on that. Um, and there's a lot of value created that from a pure analytics standpoint, but it's one of those questions where, you know, the zigzag theory, just so for people that are listening is it's the theory that like, Hey, if one team wins the next game, the other team is, is a good value because, you know, there's, there's this sort of motivation factor that comes in after you lose. Um, and I know from the history of, you know, you and I knowing each other for a long time that you often think those narratives are sort of overrated. 
And um, in the NBA playoffs, it's, it's certainly one that that is like uh, comes to fruition quite a bit in terms of the value that gets created in these situations. One thing that's been interesting just from a standpoint of um, I think that we all forget about this going into the playoffs, but the, the possessions, uh, these teams, like the average pace these teams are playing has dropped. A lot of them has dropped dramatically in the playoffs. And so a lot of these totals that, you know, you would be, you would see like the Cleveland Cavaliers um, totals against Indiana during the regular season would have been a lot higher than they were where I think like the opening game one for uh, Cleveland, Indiana uh, opened at like 218 or something like that was the total. It dropped all the way to 212. And I think by the end, the game seven was like in the low 200 range, 201, 202, 203 kind of thing. So that's a huge drop um, based on sort of like people, um, you know, I, I don't I don't know if you ever kind of see that amount of drop with like the same people playing in, you know, a same situation. So anyways, that's our that's our little NBA bit. Um, we're going to now welcome in Cade Massey uh, to the podcast. Welcoming into the Bet the Process podcast, we have Cade Massey, who is a NFL guru and is an NFL draft guru and is someone that's near and dear to Rufus's heart. Rufus, do you want to uh, give Cade a quick intro? Yeah. Well, Cade, first off, Cade was my, uh, my senior thesis advisor at Yale. And I, I feel like I owe him a huge debt. Like if I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing for a living if it weren't for Cade. Um, but Cade um, is very well known in the NFL circles for his paper he co-authored with, uh, with Nobel Prize winning economist Richard Thaler on, uh, on the NFL draft and how teams overvalue the right to choose, which I think was, that paper was maybe 15 years ago or something. It was a lot, I mean, this is a while back. Um, and more generally, Cade does a lot of great work on, um, on decision-making in, in organizations and um, actually is a co-organizer of the Wharton People Analytics Conference, which is an amazing conference that unfortunately I missed this, this year. But um, yeah, we're really happy to have Cade on the podcast. Happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. So just to full disclosure, this is our second attempt at talking to Cade. The first time um, your moron host, that's me, forgot to press record. So we wanted to actually do a little lead into the draft last week. And unfortunately, that did not happen. We had wonderful conversations about it. But now, um, post-draft, it's great to sort of talk through both some of the decisions that were made in the draft and, and also the process by it. So first off, Kate, how did you get into doing work on the NFL draft in terms of like like teams and whatnot? Like what are the type of uh, things that teams wanted from you that they found useful from your sort of decision-making or your uh, background in you know, organizational decision-making? The paper that Rufus talked about hit the manuscript form distributed for the first time in 05, I think. And we got a call from a team who, who wanted to talk with us a little bit more about it. So at that point, it was very narrow. It was, you know, basically pick management for the NFL draft. And we spent about five years working with that team here and there. And over time, it became a little bit more about organizational decision-making, um, mostly around personnel, though not only about personnel. And after that, that, that team, uh, the executives shook up a little bit, and one of them moved on to another team, and we went with him and helped him kind of set up an analytics group and decision-making processes in that in that next team and spent a number of years with them there. Presently, I'm working with a team on basically decision-making around personnel. So this team is looking for, they, 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 I think they want a couple things. I think they want kind of fresh eyes and outside perspective on things. And then they want a bridge to, you know, what's going on in other industries, what's going on and you know, what are best practices in other sports what's going on in the academic world. And so I, I can kind of make a connection for them in that way, whether it's just showing them a paper or a book or kind of introducing them to someone or sending some, sending them to another organization. What do you think the biggest mistake that teams make um, generally in the draft? I think, well, I think they're too sure they know who's going to be good. Um, and in particular, they, they they are too sure when they like a player they're too sure that player is going to work out and it's it's just one of these biases that i suppose has multiple mechanisms because it's hard to shake despite being in the league for a long time 
people still fall in love with players. And it's not just falling in love, it's convincing themselves that he's kind of a no-miss player. So how does that manifest okay. itself in the poor decisions that they make? It, most importantly, it means they put too much value in those top picks of the draft. Every year it feels like those guys are, you know, not just hop, not just no misses, but probable Hall of Famers, you know. And then they come along and they'll talk about a Saquon Barkley as a generational player, and they forget that every two years they're talking about someone being a generational player. And it, it, it's just amazing how you see the same thing happen every year and the consequences that they're, they just put too much value on having one of the top picks or too much value on choosing their particular edge rusher over the next available edge rusher because they don't appreciate there's just so much uncertainty over which of those two guys is going to be best. So would you say that teams are actually making rational trades to trade up conditional on the fact that they know that the particular player is going to be amazing? Like, let's say, for example, like the Eagles trade to get Carson Wentz. I think at the time it looked like they were, uh, that was not a good trade based on the numbers, correct? Based on historical base rates, no. Right. Based on historical base rates, that wasn't. But would you say that was a good trade now? Well, it's, yes, of course it looks good now, but that's not at all the way you want to evaluate it. We have to always, as you guys oh, know, have to push people against that. But, but Rufus, I think what you're asking is, is it ever justified? And of course it's justified if you are sufficiently sure about the player in question, because we're just talking about history. We just have, you know, historical data says these trades mostly don't work out. And that just has to be pitted against your beliefs about the player at hand. So as long as you're sufficiently confident, you might outweigh those historical base rates. The trouble is, are you sure you should be as confident as you are? And do you have, do you, do you really have evidence that when you think the guy's a, you know, 90% likely to be a 10 a, a year starter, that in fact, he's 90% likely to be a 10 year starter, because usually when people say they're 90% confident, they're right about 50% of the time. So, I guess my question that I'm sort of getting at is, is the reason that teams are poor at the draft, is it mostly the fact that they are overconfident in their assessments of players, or is it more about not valuing the future properly? I mean, uh, I know that a lot of times you trade, teams are, it seems like they give up uh, picks in subsequent years like candy, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, those are two different things, and they're both very, very real. And um, so we've been talking about the overconfidence part of it. The part you're just alluding to is um, discounting the, 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 the future. Whenever we ran our paper, we, you know, because people trade for future picks sometimes, we can estimate the discount rate on, you know, on those picks. And it's, we estimated it, and it, we can estimate it quite precisely. In the period that we looked at, which was, I don't know, 15 or 16, maybe longer than that, in the, in the draft pick part, maybe 20 years worth of trades. It was something like 137 percent. I mean, it was, and and I mean that literally, 137 um, percent. It's an extraordinary degree of myopia. Now, that may not be irrational if you're a general manager and your job is at stake and you want to win this year, and so you need a guy who's going to contribute this year. But for the organization, it's hard to imagine that that's ever rational. So, from the owner's perspective or at least what the owner's perspective ought to be, if you're not a Dan Snyder, for example, then 137 is just completely crazy. And if people will offer you that, if they'll offer you next year's pick um, at some huge premium, then you should be taking that all day. So if you were if you were a GM, would you basically just be trading away future or trading away current year picks for future picks like every year and just stockpiling picks? You know, I've worked with an organization who had a philosophy at the draft of always wanting to pick up a future pick. And so it's not that they want to trade all their picks for futures, but they wanted to, in every draft, convert one of their picks into a future just because it's the surest return in the draft. There's 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 zero question about that. There's it's, you you have the surest return of any move you can make. But of course, you need some players, so you can't do that forever. But. It, it, it is a little, what's true is it's a little different. Some teams are, they seem to be a little smarter on this than they are on other ones. And some teams are very reluctant to, um, to include a future pick in a trade. Some teams. So if we put this in light of the most recent draft, the, it seems like Cleveland's move 
in some respects was exactly, I guess they didn't trade for number one, but they did pick sort of someone that was, um, shall we say, not necessarily the market's number one pick. How do you evaluate that decision? Um, do you think that that was the right move, assuming Cleveland had the him as by far the number one pick on their draft board? Right. I, you know, the thing, I think quarterbacks are a special category. And, and truthfully, I don't think we have the goods. I don't think anybody does empirically on the wisdom of trading up or holding a, a high pick for a quarterback. They're different. They're different for for two reasons, and they're, and they're unique in this way. We kind of think that they're they're underpaid. Like a starting quarterback is underpaid given the salary cap. That if there were no salary cap, the top quarterbacks would be getting more than they actually do. So they're very well paid, but they're probably underpaid. And they're probably the only position that's underpaid. So once a player hits free agency, you kind of expect to get no surplus value out of him because you're going to have to pay whatever the market bears. But we kind of believe they're getting some surplus out of these out of the top quarterbacks. That has to that's the the problem with our analysis, given that we, our analysis, we considered what if these guys are just worth more than we think they are? We cranked things up and all our results were robust to that. What our analysis is not robust to is the second contract. All of our analysis is predicated on the first five years. So the drafting team has a at the time, they got five years. Now they get four for most of their picks or three for some, five for the first rounders. So we just limited our focus to that. Well, these quarterbacks basically never hit the market. If you have a starting quarterback, almost never does he make free agency. You get him. You don't get him for five years. You get him for 10 or 12 or 14. If they were paying market wages, that wouldn't complicate our analysis. But because we think that they're a little bit underpaid, they're getting another five years of extra surplus that's not making it into our analysis. So it's, it's, as far as I know, that's the only little hole in our analysis. And it took us a little while to figure it out. And it leaves me more open to teams trading in, into that, those early spots for quarterbacks, because where else are you going to get them? Where else are you going to find a starting quarterback? Now I don't say do it. I don't know that they should do it. I'm just more, I'm just more ambivalent, more agnostic really about the wisdom of it. I do think people still believe that they have to go to the top of the draft more than they actually do to get a starting quarterback. And I still think people believe, I know people are too sure that the guys up there are going to work out. Okay. So that's, I mean, the, that's the, go ahead. No. So I was, I, I get that. I think that's interesting. Um, but I think that this Mayfield decision by the Browns highlights one of the things that you're talking about in terms of overconfidence, because if we assume that the market, meaning like no other team was valuing Mayfield as the number one, and there's been some stuff afterwards that maybe there has, maybe, you know, maybe the Patriots did or whatever also, who knows, but assume that that's the case, then the amount of certainty that the Browns have to have versus the market to pick Mayfield first when they probably could take the risk of, you know, getting some value of trading down to three and picking Mayfield three, if going from one to three, or, you know, basically th this is what the Celtics did in the NBA draft where they didn't want faults and they knew they wanted Tatum and they traded down, got an extra first round pick out of it um, because the market valued things differently than they did. Um, and let's say even that the market doesn't, and we, we have this whole, I, I mean, let's just say that this is back to that certainty uncertainty issue. Like how certain do does Cleveland have to be that Mayfield's the best quarterback to you know do what they're doing against the market? That's just you know does that is this again another example of sort of like overconfidence by a team potentially being a, a, a pretty big mistake in terms of like a, a value that they could have extracted for the first round pick? hundred percent agree entirely. I do think it's a hard problem. I, I'm sympathetic to the guys who have to make those decisions in the rooms because it is a risky proposition. Um, you're, you, you, you never have perfect information about what the other 31 teams are going to do. And in this case, you know, two days before the draft, no one thought Mayfield was going to be number one or probably even in the top three. But as you say, things have come out afterwards that at least according to Mayfield's agent, right? So who knows? Other teams were gonna were gonna get in there if the Browns 
didn't take him. So the Browns have to know that they don't know. And that makes that, that understandably makes them more risk averse about trading back and putting it at, at, you know, putting at risk, getting the guy that they want. Um, that, that, that's not unique to this situation. It happens every time a team is offered a trade to move back. And what you, what you see is some teams are more comfortable doing those things. They're going to take a little bit of risk and in exchange for their risk, they're going to get a little premium. And sometimes the risk is going to work out. Sometimes it's not going to be worked out. It's not going to work out. But if you do that, if you do that philosophically, the numbers are just in your favor. If you're willing to bear, you know, doing that a few times every, every year over five years, six years, you're adding up a lot of, of draft pick value in what you get, but you have to have that philosophy. You have to know it's not always going to work out and a little sympathy for the Browns because of how, how messed up they've been for years and how many good quarterbacks they've passed on. It could be that they're not really in the right position to, to take that risk with the top quarter, with their quarterback at the top of the draft. It could be that politically the function is just different for them. The utility function is different for those guys because of their history. But at the core, isn't this like the reason people make bad decisions? Because essentially they are making emotional decisions based on one, what the public perception of them is going to be. Um, and, and two, I, I actually disagree with the notion that um, of the concept of risk in this case, because I think almost like waiting back, getting value for number one and then taking Darn, And then even if you end up having to take Darnold three, that's not necessarily risk, right? That's kind of the opposite because you're basically diversifying your portfolio and you're extracting value at, at a time when you can. So I guess like the, the, the general concept that I would ask then is like, you know, what are the other biases besides like we've, we've talked about overconfidence. We talked about sort of having a, a real long-term perspective. The third thing I think that is, it's important that we talked about um, is just this sort of like almost like this uh, reaction of public perception or, or some sort of something like that. Or what are the other biases that cause these NFL teams to make bad decisions that you've seen in the, play, in the draft? You know, I, I'm I'm trying to put the best face possible for some reason on on uh, the Browns' decision making um, <laughs> because mostly I I don't like what they did and I I really don't like the way they run things in general and Dorsey. You know, we're talking about the first pick. The bigger tragedy was probably what he did with the fourth pick, where he had many of the same issues and much lower stakes. So don't don't get me wrong on that. And and I'm just trying to acknowledge that they do have to manage the politics of their situation. Now, how much that should weigh? Mostly, I think it shouldn't weigh very much. And and mostly, I think but that's like that's like an ownership problem too, right? I mean, like totally. when you have when you have a situation where you're putting people. And this is like a broad lesson in life. Like when you manage people and you put them in situations where they have zero security, they're never going to make good long-term decisions. Like you have <laughs> to put people in a position where they feel confident, like a Bill Belichick or a Sean Payton or you know even a Brad Stevens to do the unconventional because they know that they have a job, even if they do. I couldn't possibly agree more. That's exactly where I was going. That is the fundamental issue. That is what separates the best teams from most teams which aren't run that way and that's that's the root of all of these issues it really is the root of all the issues and you need owners who will stand kind of in the fray and and handle that flag and keep the longer term perspective and and tell the public what they're doing and that it may be rocky and tell the 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 management that what they're doing and they'll put up with the rockiness and it, it turns out there just aren't very many owners that are willing to do that or many owners that understand the importance of it and Haslam is certainly not Haslam is certainly doesn't doesn't appear to be a guy who's willing to do that. So what do you think if you were an owner, how would you go about creating the proper incentives in your organization to to sort of um, to drive long term success? Rufus, I missed one of the words you said there. The, what, what, what in your organization? If you were an owner, how would you set things up to to create an additional structure? that would promote long-term success and have incentives that are aligned with your own. Yeah. The, the, the alignment is, it really is the fundamental, it, it is the fundamental issue that the general manager has a shorter term focus than the owner. It is the fundamental issue in sports decision-making. So it's just a classic principal agent problem um, with a, with a, with differences in, in, in time preferences, essentially. 
So you've got to you've got to figure out how to get the incentives right for that guy. So you've got to make sure he knows he's got some security. You got to make I you 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 sure don't want to punish him for short term mistakes or some taking some risks that don't turn out as long as they were good risks. Ideally, you want those guys to have some skin in the game for the future. Ideally, you want them, you want some incentives in there. Some, you know, this is the thing that non-sports organizations do all the time. They figure out how to make the company's stock price, the long-term stock, stock price matter to the decision makers. And so it's really unorthodox in sports, but it's not, it's not, comp- it's not, it happens on occasion. And you, you, you want to look for, you want to look for ways to do that. Second, you want to, you really want to prize the process. So, I, I mean, you guys are all about this. Obviously, it's the name of your podcast, but you want to evaluate these guys and emphasize and beat them over the head about process, not about outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's when you, you know, obviously right now with the where you live in Philadelphia and there's a huge talk now around this and this salient point of, creating the right you know like as you were talking about this i'm like what if you created a gm contract where they got a bonus if their team won a championship in the next 10 years yes or if the regardless of whether they still had a job or not if they had if they want to uh if what their winning percentage was over the i mean maybe it's what their winning percentage is over the next 10 years that seems like the fairest way to potentially do it um when you think back, like one of the things I think that Rufus and I talked about when we reflected on our last you know, call that didn't get aired was this idea of how similar what you're talking about with the draft is to um, sports gambling and even to blackjack. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get small edges um, yeah. based on, you know, and over time, over the long haul, those small edges will turn into um, success uh, more often than not. And so what are some of those, you know, is, is that an analogy that resonates with you? And then I guess beyond that, what are some of the other small edges that you see that teams can do um, that we haven't talked about yet? I 100% agree that that's a good analogy. It is all about small edges and racking up the small edges. And there's no one of these things that's going to, you know, catapult you into the playoffs or into the Super Bowl. That's just not the way it works. Um, and, and people who want that kind of immediate big reward are going to find analytics unsatisfying. But that's really unfortunate because there are edges here and there, then they stack up over, and especially over time, they stack up. What have we not talked about? Um, We haven't talked about positional value. If we're talking about the draft, if we continue to talk about the draft. So we've talked about- That's actually really interesting to me because it seems like there's a lot of like, we talked about this in the last time, that the idea that there is this, biasy that comes in from previous years, like almost this recency bias that causes people to make different decisions. Like one of the things that's, you know, trends that's been talked about in the betting world is just the number of wide receivers that go in the first round um, has gone down each year for the last say five, six years or something like that. Okay. What are the positional, you know, things that you see where there's value? So, this is something I haven't looked at empirically in a while. So I, I, I mostly just raised the question and others would have to dig into it. But, you know, that the ones that people seem to be increasingly aware of, though they can't hew to it, QBs obviously are different. And uh, I think that's I think that's 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 defensible, though people remain too confident. When we first did our analysis years ago and we looked at positions. Every position at every point in the draft was in expectation, positive, positive surplus value, meaning the performance value was going to exceed what, what it cost to keep him for all positions at all places in the draft, except for running backs at the top of the draft. It was the single place where you actually had negative expected value if you took a running back at the very top. So whenever we came across that, people weren't talking about it yet. People talk about it now. But there seems to be kind of this renaissance lately in drafting running backs. And, you, you know, you've always got to ask, has the game changed in some way? It makes them more valuable. But mostly I think it hasn't. And mostly that seems still like a bad proposition. And it leaves me skeptical about Barkley, for example. But, of course, I'm not alone in that. And that's not the same thing as Barkley. It's just to say, look, I mean, the fundamental issue is, and this is someone no one has down empirically, you can't make these decisions in isolation. Any pick you use, you're 
you're you're not going to use those resources for some other pick. But moreover, if you pick up a guy in in the draft, you're not you're not going to have to pick him up in free agency or flip it around. If you pick up someone in free agency, it frees you up to do something else in the draft. So basically, your decision about which quarterback to take or which running back to take last week also turns on where you picked up your backup defensive end and where are you going to get your starting cornerback. All of these things have to be decided essentially simultaneously. So you have to think about, and again, no one has it down. You have to think about where, where for each position is their relative value highest? Is it highest in the draft? If so, where in the draft? Or is it better in the free agency? Or is it better to grow them yourself? That's, that's what makes it so hard. It really makes it hard. So it's basically, it's interesting because the draft is so high profile. Um, obviously ESPN has done that. Did, actually, I'd be interested to know, have you ever looked at if there's been a change in behavior as the draft has changed in terms of its like media coverage, meaning right. like it used to be much less you know covered. Yeah. Now it's a, three-day or four-day expose on ESPN. Has that changed team's behavior at all? It's a, it's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't know. It, it, it's so, it feels like one of these, you know, frog in the pot things where it's just gotten more every year. There wasn't a discrete change. It's just kind of, I mean, it was a big deal when we started this yeah. you know, 15, 15 years ago, but it wasn't, it wasn't three days of, you know, coverage on TV, two days primetime. Um, but we, one of the things we're talking about which is a, a major bias and it's not, it's not quite the myopia thing, but it's the, it's the failure to consider opportunity costs. And this happens big time in the draft where people, they, they make a decision of, do I want to go up or not? And they, and the way the coaches think about it typically are general managers. And by the way, coaches are in the mix here. And one of the things I meant to mention was when we talked about getting the incentives, right. And you gave this great idea of let's give the general manager, you know, a bonus for the team's win percentage 10 years from now. Love that idea. But by the way, you should do the same for the coaches because the, the coaches are a big voice in the room and they're in the owner's ear. They're in the general manager's ear throughout the year on getting players. And they, they ideally need to have the same incentives that the team does, which is longer term. It's hard to do that. I mean, their positions are even more vulnerable than the general managers, right? But but the the bias that you have to work with here is they they neglect the opportunity cost. So if they're thinking about do I stick at sixteen or do I move up to six, they're thinking, well, this is the player I get at sixteen, or this is the player I get at six. They don't think enough in these bundles. It's not sixteen versus six, obviously. It's sixteen and a few other picks versus six alone. And so you're really choosing one vivid supposedly hall of fame player versus three you know solid other players and it's hard for those guys to keep that in mind they're really thinking of it just as one one for one or one vivid guy versus some vague possibilities how much do you think that this you know this idea of like i don't even know if it's a real bias it's like regret bias or something like that where uh do you remember at sloan um when um they we were there. There was the sort of Moneyball panel. I think this might have been two years ago. It, and they they talked to, um, I'm forgetting his first name now. The 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 uh, Dodgers, um, GM. Yeah, yeah. That that was my panel, man. Uh, yeah. So you were on that panel. So you were on that panel when, or you were the moderator, right? Yeah, I was the moderator. Like you talked about going and being like telling his scouts to go. Why don't you tell the story? I don't. I do not remember the story. So the story is you asked him about uh, he told the story about basically like telling his scouts that they could like go out and shoot this player. And after they traded him, so they would never have to see what he did. And would they make the decision or the trade then knowing that? So let me let me paint it better. Uh, You asked him the the Dodgers GM, Farzad. Farhan, sorry. Farhan Zadi. Yeah, I didn't. I was like blanking for a second. You asked Farhan, you said, you know, t- he had told you the story off off um, stage and you had said, you know, you wanted him to tell that story. And the, the idea was that when we make trades, one of the reasons that we don't make trades that are necessarily good for us is that we're worried about seeing that other player succeed 
um, and the regret that we're going to experience based on that. So he told the scouts, well, what, what if you were able to, you know, after we make that trade, just go in and shoot that person in the back and then you never have to see him succeed. Uh, would, would you make the decision then? And, you know, obviously he, would, he made a joke about telling the story because he was like, people are going to think I'm, you know, a complete idiot or non-humanitarian or crazy or whatever it is. Um, that idea of regret bias, the, do you think that, how much do you think that plays into the bad decisions that are made by NFL teams? Oh, huge. I mean, it's a major, it's a major issue in decision-making in general, and it's probably even stronger in us in decision-making that's as public as it is with sports. One of the ways, one of the ways that it comes, it comes up every year, multiple times a year is in the decision whether to trade back or not, because you've got these huge potential for regret. Um, if you trade back and the guy, you, you know, you take a chance and you, you, I know Jeff, you think there isn't that much risk because you get compensated, but it's still risky. Do you keep the, do you get still get the guy? So, you know, a, a team all the time teams face this, they're sitting at 16 and they know they want a certain guy and they get an offer to move back 10 spots. And the question is, is our guy still going to be available? And the trouble with these, these situations, cause you've got regret, right? If you move back, you get some extra picks, but you lose your guy, you might regret it. The trouble with these situations is that they they never learn that they're wrong. Some feedback is missing because look what happens if you if you if you take the riskier if you take the prudent moneyball risky move by trading back, you can be wrong or you can be right. But if you stick where you are and take your guy and say no to the trade, you're never proven wrong. There's no way to be proven wrong because you don't that feedback is just missing. And so essentially you can be proven wrong if you take the chance. You can never be proven wrong if you don't take the chance. There's no way to learn in that setup that the right thing to do is to move back. So it has to be from philosophy as opposed to actual experience because experience is never going to teach you because you're never wrong if you never trade back. It sounds like what you're talking about is largely like an endowment effect even before you have that player, right? I mean, the team's... You you have this guy in mind, in your mind, like he's already yours, right? And then you're you're losing him. Would you, do you think the endowment effect plays a role here? Yeah, I mean, you can hear it in the way people talk about moving up or or moving back. I mean, teams that would never trade up to number four um, are somehow very reluctant to get out of number four. And those are essentially, I mean, assuming a liquid market, it's not perfectly liquid, but, you know, there's, especially at the top of most drafts, there's quite a bit of offers coming coming and going. Those are equivalent choices. You should you should feel you should feel the same about holding four and trading back, or starting out back and trading up to four. And people don't. If you're if you're endowed with four, you're much more reluctant to part with it. Just quickly, uh, the endowment bias. Do you want to explain that to people who might not understand what that means? The endowment effect is something that. Uh, Thaler gets credit for it's a part of part of prospect theory, but it's really been unpacked by Dick and some psychologists. The reluctance to part with um, something you've been given a greater reluctance to part with it than than to acquire it, essentially. So even if you even if it's a you know something that you wouldn't expect to have any emotional value or you didn't work to obtain, you've been given you know a, the classic example is a coffee mug, um, and then you're asked what would you sell that mug for. Uh, it turns out you're going to ask more for that mug and require more. In fact, if given an actual choice, then if you weren't given the mug and ask, what would you pay for that mug? And it causes this little kink. It causes this little, little kink and kind of screws up the market because it shouldn't matter theoretically whether or not it was given to party A or party B. They should, you know, state their preferences and make their offers and the, the, the asset should move to whoever values it the most and therefore everything should be efficient but it doesn't work that way because of the endowment effect. So uh, I know you got to go pretty soon. Rufus, do you have any other questions you want to ask? I have one last question I want to ask him. Um, I, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about the, uh, I mean, I, I was cutting out a little bit here. My internet's not great, but um, the, the whole running back and the Saquon Barkley at the top of the draft thing. And, and Cade, you and I have done some work before that showed that running backs and wide receivers were the least valuable or the, the most replaceable positions in terms of the value lost um, being the least uh, your starter at those positions. I'm not explaining this very well, but um, the most replaceable and, and I'm, I'm the most, yeah, the most replaceable positions are running wide receiver um, that we found. This was a little while ago. The division wasn't using the largest sample size in the world, but, um, and I've kind of always used this to sort of say, okay, um, why would you want to take a running back high? 
like because they're really replaceable. But at the same time, running backs do tend to age more quickly, right? So, and you may not be able to get get a market. But um, would you ever consider taking if you were running a team? Would you ever consider taking a running back high? And how do you think like what we what we found about the replaceability of running backs says about the value of like a top tier running back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I loved our analysis. We'd used it based on injuries and it was a way of looking at the relative value of various positions. And, 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 and we needed it because we needed a value on quarterbacks for the models. And we'd learned some interesting things like the only other position that looked like even remotely positive was a tight end, if I remember correctly. And then we had some that were quite low that kind of comported with our other beliefs. The thing that that analysis misses and again, this is just me acknowledging what we don't know, right? Because we're all just kind of you know, grappling, moving towards better understanding. And this is one frontier. That was for average effects. And we don't know, the, if you look at the, the impact across the full distribution from bad running backs to average to the top running backs, what does that right tail look like? And um, that just requires more, dialysis, more analysis, more data, more sophisticated modeling. And we didn't have the answer to that. So the people that believe in Barkley say, look, he's not a typical back. He's going to be a, quote, generational back. And so he's really worthwhile. Maybe the average guy is replaceable. This guy's not replaceable. And I, don't, I mostly don't believe that, but I'm at least open to the fact that we haven't yet shown empirically that it's not true. But my position at the moment is, one, historically backs are low value at the top of the draft most replaceable of any player and um and two we just heard too many times we've heard too many times people say with great confidence this is the best back since eric dickerson and how many times can someone say that before you just call bs on it and say no we're not going to take the guy all right so my final question to you uh kate is we've talked about this concept of sort of like a money ball organization can you first, you know, to give you a plug, you are the, uh, you do the Moneyball podcast. Um, I just saw, like, did you, you guys are doing something on the uh, Kentucky Derby and the and horses this, this week? Yeah, our show's on Wednesday mornings, and we had a great guy. Uh, we, every year, Derby Week, we have a, a guest who um, advises buyers. So he helps, he, buy, he helps owners buy young thoroughbreds. And he's totally moneyball. And he's published papers and peer-reviewed academic articles. And he's, he's a terrific analyst. And so we we get his take every year. Um, and so yeah, I tweeted out from Massey Peabody about that this morning. How does he do? You know, I have not inspected his record, but he seems to do real well. He's got, let's put it this way, he's got a lot of clients and he makes a great living. He's been doing it for a long time. And, um, you know, it's small edges, Jeff. It's small edges. And so you know exactly how he does. He, you know, over the long haul and across a big portfolio, he does well. But any given race. No, I want a sure, I want a sure thing in the derby. I don't want edges. <laughs> I want a sure thing. Um, yeah, so what yeah. I was going to ask you was, we talk about, money, first of all, we talk about money ball organizations. Can you define for us truly what a money ball organization is? And then second, is it time that we finally put that term to rest? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's my pod, my my Sirius XM show is called Wharton Moneyball, so we're going to go with it for a little while. But, <laughs> you know, pe- people have come up with different precise definitions. And I mean, I think more than anything, what does it, it mean to you? Evidence based decision making, despite any conventional wisdom. And I, I, I would just that's that's it in, in a nutshell for me. The willingness to do the unconventional based on data. Um, that to you is what a money ball organization is. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I like that. Definition. All right, Kate, thanks for the time. This was awesome. Um, It was actually, I think, good to be able to bring in some of the real world analogies from this, this draft um, into this. So I I, uh, really applaud myself for forgetting to record last time. (laughs) Good job. Good work. work. Enjoy talking to you guys. Always do. Okay. Thanks, Kate. Well, that was Kate Massey. And I, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount from him. I know, Rufus, your mic was kind of cutting out and um, being in South America um, has been challenges technically for you right now. But, you know, what are what was the sort of thing that stuck out most with you in terms of, of Kate's stuff? I know we talked last week after the pod about how 
um, much there is to learn as gamblers from Cade. But w- what was the what was the first thing that jumped out at you? The first thing that jumped out at me is is how much he understands that models are their imperfections to models and and because he and i have you know models we bet based on or i, I should say i bet based on he and, and we publish picks and all, all that massy under the massy peabody um i don't even know what to call it massy peabody umbrella. framework massy peabody umbrella umbrella mm-hmm. that's a better word mm-hmm. um, but you know he's willing to acknowledge the fact that we don't know about how how valuable quarterbacks are or like or how much teams should be willing to give up to to trade for quarterbacks and 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 we don't know how valuable top end running backs are we can say that the average running back is more replaceable but but a top end running back we we don't know and i think i think how being able to sort of in, admit there you know that the model isn't perfect is really good but at the same time understanding the faults and and, and all our biases in our intuition that cause us to make irrational decisions um and so it's 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 kind of a it's a bit of a dichotomy there. Yeah, I thought there were some interesting things. The, the one thing that I talked a lot about him with was this idea of like, you know, over the over the portfolio of drafts that you have, it's trying to get these small edges um, in every you know transaction or move you make. And if you get those small edges over time, you will like ex, you know extract that expected value in those edges. And so that's certainly something that resonates a lot with me as a blackjack player. I know it probably resonates. Well, view is a sports better, um, but I think one of the things that's even more interesting is just sort of the like some of the bias, like you said, some of the biases that come in that cause sort of inefficiency um, in these markets, and, and even just some of the reasons that you know, like even some of the things we're talking about with like regrettable uh, regret bias or something like that, they're the reasons we sort of make these bad decisions. Um, you know, like. I don't even know, like even endowment bias is kind of interesting if you think about it, right? The idea that like, let's say that you make a bet or something like that at a certain line um, and, you know, like maybe something fundamentally changes or something and, and you can buy out of your bet or something like, you know what I'm saying? Like, is there something like, uh, or even futures, like futures hedging, like I guess there's just all these sort of biases that like get introduced um, by position or by owning something i don't know do you see any analogy to endowment bias in the in the betting world or am i stretching i think the, for, for me it's fantasy football that's where where it exists big time like i i've i've declined trade offers from uh friends in fantasy football and then i thought i thought about it and i was like if i if if if, if the shoes were if, if the shoe was on the other foot would I take that trade? And I was like, oh, and that's completely irrational that I wouldn't make the trade either way. Like that makes zero sense. Right. So I understand that I'm completely guilty of that in certain areas of my life, but I don't really feel that in the betting world as much because to me, it's more, I don't know it, it for whatever reason it's different. I'm able to just sort of, um, I'm not, I guess in fantasy football, I'm using my intuition and it's sort of a fun thing I'm doing, um, without really, um, looking at the numbers as much or i shouldn't say of course i look at numbers but i'm not um scientifically analyzing it like i am with sports betting stuff so um whenever my intuition comes into play for sure the endowment effect is big and i think so i think that's probably a bigger issue for someone that is betting without a strict model and having to sort of use their intuition to make decisions so i mean have you found personally that that that's something you've run into yeah, I'm just, I'm, I mean, I, I definitely see it in the, like you said, in the fantasy football or, or any of the, those types of uh, games where like you, you own a player and you like start valuing that player. Like I, I play in a baseball sim league, which has zero money attached to it. And I still feel that way about the players that I have and whatnot. Um, you know, that's, that's a super nerd alert there, by the way, baseball simulator. Uh, so, but in terms of like, I guess it's just, what I'm what I'm wondering or what I'm thinking through is just this idea. I mean, what you said was interesting because the only way to overcome so what we talked a lot about with Cade in this in this time was just this idea of different biases. And you know, the Cade obviously being close to uh, Richard Thaler, this idea that like there's these cognitive biases that force us to make bad decisions because we're humans and there's nothing we can do about it. And really what I've always said is the only way you can fix it 
is by being analytically driven or data driven and having a framework that you stick with. Otherwise, we're prone to these sort of emotional biases. And we talk about that a lot on this on this podcast. Um, so I think that's interesting. So I guess I'm I'm thinking about what are those analogies like, you know, the, the idea of long term perspective. I think that's probably a pretty good one for a gambler, um, like especially gamblers that are advantage gamblers, meaning you do have an advantage. There are going to be times where you lose, um, where you lose one bet or you lose two bets and, and, and three bets or you have a bad couple of weeks um, and you have to have the long term perspective and you also have the bankroll. Um, to maintain that long-term perspective. And that, that's similar to like this idea of this long-term perspective for teams. Um, and, and I think that people underestimate what long-term even means, like the, what small sample size even means. Um, so I do find that interesting. Um, how about the overconfidence piece? Do you see any, you know, like the teams are overconfident and that's why they make bad decisions. Do you see any of that in gamblers? Um, I don't know. because. I mean, I. That's not something. I mean, I, I guess you would really if they weren't analytically I'm driven, right? Like if you in your model. No, I, I guess you could talk about over, like, am I overconfident in my model? And I think maybe, um, that's that would be a valid question. But well, that's the whole idea of like regressing to the market. Like, I don't know if you remember this. This is like a long time ago in our friendship, but uh, Oregon and Ohio State were playing in the uh, national football championship or whatever. And you had like a model that you regress the market. And I just looked at like, I was just looking at yards per play and, and things like that. And I was like, Rufus, from a yards per play standpoint, Oregon is actually even with Ohio State, you know, or Ohio State is even like slightly better. And I think the Ohio State was getting seven or something like that in that game. And you and I argued because even though your numbers also liked Ohio State, you weren't ready to like, you know, mortgage your house and, and do everything on Ohio State because of what the market was. And I'm like, what if the market's just wrong and whatnot? So I wonder like, you know, like in your past, you know, you pay, obviously you pay a lot of respect to the market. And I know that most good advantage gamblers do actually pay a lot of respect to the market. You know, is that just like a wisdom of crowds thing? Like what, what makes you want to give the market so much credit, uh, so much credit when essentially you're trying to bet against the market to some degree? Well, models imperfect. I mean, it's, it's based on quantitative information and it's, there's there's lots of information that my model does not account for, and that's I'm able to empirically show that. And so I think if you don't have a healthy degree of respect for the market, you're going to be you're going to overstate your edges. And I think you can, I mean, I can look and look at my previous returns, and and, and my returns are historically are not as great as my model would predict, which mean which tells you everything you need to know right there. The fact that that differences between my model and the market aren't like it's not like they're like i found like for example in the nfl it's close to like 50 so, um i think there's not account really like 90 players that suit up on each team and you have um i don't know i mean i feel like you have um a lot more personnel changes going on during the season things like that like I have to regress even more. It's something like 65% or maybe it's like two thirds market, one third my model. So, um, so I think that, yeah, like, like, and plus there's so much you don't know. And I think understanding what you don't know and what you're not accounting for is really important. So, I mean, I, I don't think yeah, the think market that... is always hundred percent, right. But it's, I think that there's times like these big games, like college football national championship, you're going to have a lot more public action there driving that. So I think that the market number there may be a little, I probably wouldn't want to wait it quite as much, but, um, but in a regular, I mean, cause my, I guess my number, my weight for the market is based is sort of just like we're talking about with Kate, it's for positional values, right? It's, it's that, that's based on an average player each position. And this here, I'm talking about an average game. I want to wait the market X amount and my, um, and my model one minus X amount. So I don't know, I guess, yeah, that or your example, the Oregon Ohio State. I mean, I, I don't. I think I might have actually been a little bit too high on the market there. Yeah, no, it's. I, I think what you said actually was really good. The the idea that like the reason you respect the model, sorry, the market is because that you know that your model doesn't have everything in there, and the market may be valuing some things differently. Um, certainly, the idea that you value the market um, more in sort of these smaller games than these public games that's interesting um i wonder if 
like I know often you've asked me before in certain situations when a game is like very far off um, what your model is, like what the what the you know WTF, like what's going on here? Do you know why this would be the case? Um, I feel like sometimes we can figure it out. Sometimes we know what they're what they're and in that case, does that make obviously that makes you feel a bit more comfortable? Um, then, then you just have no idea why your model's so far off what the market is. Um, but generally, like the the idea of, of uh, models versus market is is it's fascinating to me um, because of you know it's at the core of sort of like where value is extracted, but it's also at the core of where models may fall short of um, you know reality. So. Anyways, you got anything else? We can we can probably cut this cut this short with your yeah, I challenges think I technically. Run. I gotta go. I gotta get like I gotta go take some more antibiotics and visit the bathroom again. All right, sounds good. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Bet the Process podcast. As always, I'm Jeff Ma, and Rufus is about to hike Machu Picchu. So, wish him luck, everyone. Ma- Did you call it Machu Picchu? Machu Did you really Pichu? say that? Is it, I'm gonna hike know. Machu Picchu with amoebas in my intestines and. <laughs> It hopefully it's, it's won't be Pichu, too much of a Pichu, shitty Pichu. experience literally I've, I've said a lot of things cor- cor- incorrectly today i it's fine it's not my first language so i had a friend Thanks, in guys. college that literally thought it was february he, he thought that's how you pronounced it but i'm not sure if it's not okay thanks guys i don't think so